really a fantastic machine. It really is. It's um, it's survived. Uh, it's it's survived American Airlines. You see these dents oh, wow. in it here, and uh, it's been it's been to California four times, and hither and thither in my suitcase, and it. Uh, fantastic. It really is quite amazing. The fidelity with the built-in microphone is uh, surprisingly good. It's really. Uh, better than most regular microphones. I, I did a test with another microphone and discovered the built-in microphone is really, uh, really good. Terrific. What of course, they, they stopped making it, of course. They did? Yeah. Why? Sony seems to have a habit, from what I can tell, of uh, whenever they make something really good, they stop. They discontinue it. <laughs> hmm. You know, the only drawback being the five-inch reels, the small reels, which, uh, as you can see, it revs a long time on one side. There's no problem, you know. Yeah. So, anyway. <coughs> well, to continue, um, let me ask about one or two more people on this thing, and then mm -hmm. let's sketch in some more of the general chronology, and then I have some uh, more issue-oriented type of questions. Right. Um, Gordon Converse, I think you remarked, was a Boston... Uh, he is the chief photographer for the Christian Science Monitor. And his work you showed, I assume, was some other work he did that was a, uh, of what? No, it was the thing I showed him, his journalistic work. Oh, it was his journalistic work. Because that's chief photographer. He's the one who gets all the best assignments, travels mm -hmm. all over the world. And I think that he is, certainly from my limited knowledge of uh, photojournalism, I don't particularly follow that end of it, but I think he's probably one of the most interesting around. Well, that. Uh, his uh, photos are not uh, the pat formative things, you know, mm -hmm. but he goes out of his way to make them interesting, unusual, informative. Um, and uh, as I recall, what the hell did we have in that show? But there are some portraits of uh, some of the uh, world leaders that are absolutely astonishing. You know? mm -hmm. And uh, I think that uh, uh, certainly of the local papers, the, the monitor has always had um, good photos, good photo layouts. Um, their, their, their work is interesting. And I think because uh, Congress is the one who more or less uh, uh, gets a hold of the staff and trains them in his own way. And uh, so that there's nothing in a sense of, uh, of the kind of a cliche photojournalistic stuff that you usually find in daily newspapers. Mm -hmm. yeah. yeah. Is he still there? Hmm? Is he still doing that? Well, I... Or, as far as you know? Uh, he's either retired or about to retire. Yeah. Okay. Because he's been, uh, he's been on that paper for a hell of a long time. Yeah. What about Gerda Pederick? Yeah. Less said about her, better. <laughs> the, uh... Her name came up in my work. Yeah. In relation to Clarence White, I guess she was later out at Ohio University. Is that true? Or do you know what? Well, she was also, I think, at Eastman House. Yeah. And uh, at that time, at the time that I showed her, I believe she was working on a project of uh, photographing the uh, houses made of stone, field stone in that area. In, in the in New, New, York, New, New York, York State area? Upper New York State area. And... Uh, uh, was that the work that she sent you then? 
and some of it. Oh, she sent such a bunch of crap. <laughs> she was doing, uh, you know, uh, at that time I think she was living in New Hampshire. I think she had already finished with her thing at Eastman House. Uh -huh. I believe she was living in New Hampshire. And she had sent things like baby pictures because she wanted to get commissions for baby pictures, you see. Uh huh. So she was trying to encourage me to put up these damn silly baby pictures. And I must admit that uh, some of the people I know, or I, I have exhibited, have not distinguished them since. Uh, but there have been very few exhibits that I regret having. Mm -hmm. Hers is one of them. Mm -hmm. I think when we talked earlier, you remarked that because Feininger was another problem. Feininger was another one. The problem being, uh, in part, that he sent Life magazine lab prints. Right. Which were dreadful. And then he finally did send me some of the others, uh, some of his own prints, which were of a better quality. Mm -hmm. And uh, Actually, a fairly interesting photographer when you really look at the whole Well, I can't say that, uh, I mean, uh, with the high, that one sad experience just discouraged me from looking at any other of his work. And uh, so mm -hmm. I, you know, well, I just never followed him. Mm -hmm. And what about um, uh, William Davis? Who who is he? Uh, is he a is he a New Yorker? No, he's from uh, I believe Kentucky, or he was from around that area of the country at that time. Uh -huh. um, at about this period. He comes in in the 62, 63 season. Right. At about that time, around, I think it must have been in 61 or 62, or, or probably in 61, the uh, De Cordova Museum right. in Lincoln put on a fabulous, a, well, fabulous, it was a very large photography exhibition, mm -hmm. uh, a survey of uh, American photography, I think it was called. And I think. Uh, and uh, uh, I helped the director with that show in terms of putting it together. Mm -hmm. And uh, then it was also, I believe, I believe one part of it was juried. One part was invitational and another part was juried. Another the juried section being open to anyone. Right, yeah. And uh, I think Davis was one of the people who uh, submitted to that jury exhibition. Were you on the jury? I don't think so. Did you help pick who the jurors were, probably? Uh, that I don't even remember. Yeah, anyway, but he was one of uh, the... But he was one of the entrants. And I was fascinated with his work. In fact, I think he was the only one. No, there was, there was another one. There was a girl, uh, a woman photographer whose name I can't remember now. Uh, but he was a, he was one of the few that I was interested in, and so I got in touch with him to send me a portfolio. And he did. We showed his work, but I've not heard of him since. Yeah. Uh, somehow, sad thing is that somehow I lose contact with so many of these people. Yeah. Well, I have a I had a catalog of that De Cordova Museum here somewhere. Well, we can look for it. Yeah. Later. Anyway. We'd have the other, yeah. Nice. Yeah. Okay, well, um, 
the you also show this surrealism group, and this sort of leads into a more general question. Uh, Teskey, Laughlin, and Telberg. Mm -hmm. And I think you remarked earlier that you also had some problems uh, with Telberg's prints were... Uh, yeah, they weren't up to par in terms of the quality. And maybe that's partly just, I guess, the way he's working is a lot of uh, mixing of different kinds going on, multiple exposure of the print and mm -hmm. multiple exposed negatives and things that may be conducive to a print that's uh, hard to, mm -hmm. to, to print. But um, it, this, this may be, uh, well, undoubtedly there are exceptions to this, but it seems to me that in looking over, generally, the people that you've showed, um, certainly in the last 10 years, and um, to, to some pretty well extent, to a pretty large extent, this group in these first four years here, that your taste has not, never seemed to run towards what would really be described as a surrealistic you know, with the exception of these three people and one or two others, that you seem to be attracted uh, naturally to a, I don't know what the other word is, but a more uh, realistic uh, or a more... A straight uh, approach? Straight, uh, all these words that are always used. And I'm wondering how the surrealistic show came about in your own mind, what that was... Uh, well, I've uh, always had an interest in surrealism. And I suppose in those early years, uh, the interest was keener than it is now. Mm -hmm. And uh, because I know that I had uh, graphics people who were who belonged to that school, sort of a couple of painters perhaps. Yeah. And uh, I really don't know how I got onto this trio. But uh, it sort of just. Uh, got me involved with it in other words, the continuation of my interest in surrealism in general. And uh, I thought it would be a good idea to uh, perhaps uh, put these things up again in those early years to show the people that photography is capable of as many points of view as you can find in other media. Mm -hmm. uh, I loved, I really liked Teske's work very much. And uh, again, unfortunately, I've not seen or heard from him since. Do you think that you might show his work again and if it, the circumstances I came might up? very well. I might very well. Uh, certainly that uh, experience was such a wonderful one that uh, I would certainly give it uh, mm -hmm. tremendous consideration. Did you say that you had never actually met Teske? He's always been out west. Yeah, I don't think I've met him. Cross paths with him? No. Or Val Talbert for that matter, I don't think. So there's no special plan in the fact that uh, Teske has never exhibited again. It's just partly his. Uh, well, he never follows up, and you never. Yeah, it's just that kind of situation. I mean, you know, I certainly within the last few years, I have been far more involved with the, the younger photographers, less known photographers. In the last couple of years. Last. Well, longer than that, but uh, uh, mm -hmm. well, probably from uh, the time of once they do, you see, and uh, well, because I, I firmly believe that even though uh, the work of the past has its place, 
my great relief is that is in the work that's being done now. That we are living in this century, in this decade, or whatever, and that there are people out there who are struggling, working to express the essence of the time that we live in. It's not a uh, harping back on the past. It's not a glorification of the past. Mm-hmm. It's not living in the past, but it's, it's living in the present. And so I strongly believe that uh, even though we cannot do without the past, that our primary concern should be with the present. Mm-hmm. And uh, so that uh, you'll find that with year, as, as the years go by, we, I mean, I'm emphasizing the past less and less. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, it's true. The more recent shows are, uh, are um, perhaps the percentage of names that we recognize now uh, is smaller, although there still continue to be people like Cap Negro. Yeah, well, Cap, uh, you know, I, uh, I love Cap as a person. We had a very good relationship over the years. Uh, he uh, lived and had his his dark room in my building across the street, mm-hmm. you know, where, where I lived for a few years. Uh, so that uh, you know we've uh, socialized together, we you know mm-hmm. wrapped together in a lot of things. So that uh, I have a great respect for him as a craftsman, as a photographer, as an artist. So I'll, I'll continue to show his work so long as he wants me to mm-hmm. or allows me to. To um, extend the chronology, just uh, for the purposes of sort of making the tape a complete uh, document, in a sense, on up in uh, at the end of the season in '63, you um, closed the gallery. I take mm-hmm. it was at the end of the season, right? Um, and you reopen eventually. Well, in that period, among other things, you you did a little bit of writing. You did for the Boston. Uh, well, in that period, between yeah. Well, I think you said that was in '64. You just right. yesterday, and we were. Well, in '63, by 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 the summer of '63, Marie was already quite sick. She was terminally sick, mm-hmm. and so that fall we made a trip to Europe. We were there for a couple of months. We came back. She went into the hospital for treatments. She came out. We toured around again, Canada. Um, came back, she went back into the hospital, and so that up until her death, she was in and out of the hospitals quite, quite, a, quite often. Yeah. And uh, when she wasn't in the hospital, I was taking care of her. I uh, wasn't able to uh, find a job anywhere, not that I was looking for one. And so I occupied my time at home with her, reading and writing. Uh, I got this freelance job with Monitor to do the art reviews on an mm-hmm. occasion. In 1964, I took a job as the uh, curator for the Boston Arts Festival mm. because that, it, uh, I mean, you know, the offices were right here on Newbury Street, and the festival itself took place in the Boston Garden, which is there just on the end of Newbury Street. Mm-hmm. So that I wasn't that far away from her, 
if she needed anything, you know. And uh, that was just for the summer. But even then, I organized two large exhibitions of photography. As part of that festival? As part of the festival. Uh, because even though I was curator of the whole visual part of the festival, mm -hmm. and now the festival not only had exhibits of painting and sculpture and graphics and photography, but they had uh, they had operas and theater and concerts and all aspects of the uh, performing and visual arts. Mm -hmm. yeah. So I was in charge of the visual aspect of it. So uh, I thought it would be real keen to have a couple of photography exhibits because this was... For a big public exposure. Yeah, this was the first time that the festival was to run for the entire summer, 12 weeks. In the past, it ran usually for about a month, four, you know, just four weeks. Mm -hmm. And so here I thought it was a fantastic opportunity to introduce the public to some of the established masters working in our country and some of the younger ones, uh, especially in the New England area. The first exhibit, the first week exhibit, was the old was the masters of photography, Ansel Adams, Brett Weston, uh, Dorothea Lang, Callahan, Siskin, um, Minor White, uh, I can't remember who else. I think there might have been a couple of other people involved as well. So that was for the first six weeks. And so this next week, six weeks, I had uh, 17 New England photographers. Again, people like Captain Negro, Kiranzio, Mike Lick, uh, Warren Hill, uh, Marika Sindis, uh, oh, uh, Nick Dean, uh, Len Gittleman, uh, oh, I don't know, Nick, quite a few. Mm -hmm. And generally, they were quite successful in terms of you know, audience appeal. And uh, I remember the one of the more interesting things that happened to me. Uh, Dorothea Lang had sent me a group of. Uh, she had just come back from Egypt, and she had sent me a, a group on the Egyptian woman. And uh, this festival, all of these pictures now are are were hung in tents mm -hmm. or under awnings, actually. Right. And uh, each photographer had a tent to himself. Mm -hmm. And I remember working. I was installing the Dorothea Lang pictures. And uh, I knew someone was behind me snapping away. You know, I could hear a camera clicking. Mm -hmm. I didn't pay too much attention because down at the public garden it happens all the time. Right, sure. And so when I finally turned around to pick up another picture or whatever, and there was Dorothea. <laughs> she was taking pictures of me hanging her stuff. <laughs> you see? Correct. She had... Uh, one of her children, I think, was living in Providence, Rhode Island at the time. And she came east for a visit. And she knew that I was about to install that show, so she came to Boston to see me and to see how the installation was going along. It was such a fantastic coincidence that <laughs> just as she came through, I was doing her things. Yeah. And about six months before she died, she sent me a couple of prints of that, oh, of that shooting session, you see of me hanging her things on a wall. Fantastic. Yeah, it was nice. 
That's great. I had a very nice thing with her, a very nice rapport. I really liked her very much as a person. You know, I, I haven't ever, uh, I mean, uh, well, it seems as though she was just on very good terms with uh, everyone practically that she met. I mean, I haven't heard a bad word about her ever. Oh, that's understandable. That woman, you know. despite her physical handicaps, despite how did I understand it, she was really suffering toward the end there. But that woman was so full of enthusiasm. She was so full of energy and everything was so positive with her. Yeah, I mean, it's uh, out in San Francisco, she was appears to have been the one person who really got along with the total diversity of people in the whole area out there, you know. I can understand that. You know, I mean, I was very shocked almost to hear, I did a short interview with the man named Willem Kritz. Oh, yes. You I know, know Willem. sort of surrealistic photographer. Yeah, I, I, and, I, I, uh, I met Willem at, uh, at Eastman House. Yeah, and um, uh, I was surprised to hear that he'd actually worked for her. You know, they had a very mm -hmm. friendly relationship. Uh, yeah. You know, which, I mean, he, he certainly represents one extreme. That's right. <laughs> That's right. So, uh... No, I can understand why, because she was such a fantastic person. Yeah. I remember after being in Eastman House at uh, an SPE meeting. Uh, I think it was an SPE meeting. And they showed uh, a film of her. Um, it was it was an unedited film, so that they were just, you know, mm -hmm. bits and pieces of it, sort of strung together. But I still remember one of the things she talked about, and I think this is one of the things that uh, makes me feel as I do about contemporary young photographers, is that she and her generation lived the depression, and they photographed the farm, you know the. Uh, the problems of farmers and agriculture, the rural sections of America. And she made a very strong appeal at that time in that film that what we ought to be doing now is photographing the urban areas of the country. Mm -hmm. This is where the life is really focused. Yeah. That the emphasis in the American life now is more in the urban areas than in the rural ones. Even though it seems that our value still comes from, from the farm and from the city. And what she was suggesting is that we could employ all of these young photographers to do that job, which I thought was a fabulous suggestion. Mm. And I'm really quite surprised that no one in a leadership position would follow up on it. And uh, so I was really quite, I was, I was impressed with that woman from the first time we met and right up until our last meeting at mm. the festival and up until our last correspondence that we had, which wasn't very large, mm -hmm. but I've always had a, uh, a great appreciation of, what, of, of her as a human being and as a photographer. Mm -hmm. Perhaps more as a human being, though, mm. yeah. because I find that, uh, as I say, most of the people I've shown I either knew or I got to know, and I can't say that I liked them all. Right, sure. And I also find it very difficult to show the, to show the work of someone I don't like, mm -hmm. you see. And even though I might respect him as a person, or rather as a photographer, uh, but I don't respect him as a person. So it's extremely difficult for me to have any contact with him, and so by extension it's, it's difficult for me to show the work. Sure. Even though they might deserve it. Yeah, right. Huh. But uh, 
No, that's really quite natural. It's a prejudice against the person, which which might seem unfair, but I I can't help it. Well, you have to deal with them, and you have to be sort of very feel very supportive of them in order to sure, I think, right. show their work. Sure. Okay. Well, in in this period, you uh, you end up opening up the gallery again in sixty six. Right. At the opening of the season, basically. Yeah. Um. When you when you closed the gallery, did you think in your own mind at some point you probably would reopen? Was that sort of a well, no, because you have to understand my personal situation at that time. I mean, I was I had a very sick wife, and we knew that she was going to die, but we just didn't know when. So you didn't have any plans, really. To so I her. couldn't really make any long-term plans because she depended on me, and even though at times I resented that her dependence. Or her need for me. Mm -hmm. I mean, that's the least I could do because sure. you understand that uh, in all those early years, she was very helpful to me when I was down and out. When I was, when I needed support, she supported me. Mm -hmm. um, uh, in, you know, in terms of the gallery, in terms of my personal life, and we eventually married because she wanted me to uh, raise her son, Peter, mm -hmm. and. Uh, so that even though we had a very good relationship. And those last few years, as difficult as they were, I couldn't see myself separated from her. And so that there was no chance for me to make any long-term plans. Mm -hmm. And uh, when the festival ended in 64, uh, I think uh, that's about when I started to do those articles for the Monitor. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, then uh, the uh, and then you know while Marie was able to we we took trips here and there we did quite a few things as long as she was physically able to do it but uh, in the early let's see which was either late sixty four probably or early sixty five early sixty five probably the Institute of Contemporary Art under the uh, with the sponsorship of the American Federation of Art Institute of the Film Program. And uh, I was hired by the AFA to uh, review and to uh, write critiques on and about films that had to do with uh, all aspects of the visual arts. Kind and of like program notes for the uh, not more than not just program notes, but I mean, use but the review of the films, capsule reviews that that were, would eventually be published by the AFA and distributed to uh, organization school or whoever had need for films on art or about art I see. or artists for that matter. Yeah. So that uh, and uh, even though the AFA was uh, was paying my salary and uh, sponsoring the entire program. I worked in the ICA, the Indian Institute of Contemporary Art offices, and the deal was that I would uh, make up a weekly program for the institute, for their audience, you see, which meant uh, trying to get uh, maybe a couple of hours of film together to show one day or one night a week. Mm -hmm. I think it was Wednesday night we had those shows. Um, so, uh, I worked on that project for about nine months, I believe. And I must have looked at 
lot of films. Hundreds of films. Anything from five minutes to a full-length thing, you see, full-length program. And I wrote my little reviews of these things. Uh, I really like don't know whatever happened to them. Sounds either. like work. <laughs> oh, it was pleasant work. Hmm. It was pleasant work. In, um, in the fall of 1965, in October 2nd, 1965, Marie died, which meant that I was alone. Peter went off, was off at school. And so that I had this job by then at the Institute. And uh, the job had me fully occupied. Um, and it was, in a sense, really great. I made it great for myself. Mm -hmm. um, I had a sound, a 16 millimeter sound projector installed at the foot of my bed, <laughs> in my bedroom. Uh, I would come home every night from the offices at the ICA with about three or four hours of film. Right. Next morning I would get up, make a pot of coffee, whatever, get into bed with my coffee, or rather put on a reel of film first. Right. <laughs> get into bed with my coffee and my note and my clip pad, <laughs> a clipboard, you know. Real Hollywood. Look at movies in bed and, you know, then make my notes. And after three or four hours of looking at pictures, go down to the office and write up my notes, you see. <laughs> so it was, a, it was a real good job for me. Uh, unfortunately, I didn't get along well with the director of the Institute. Mm. And I might say that she's probably the only woman I didn't get along with, ever. Mm. And why, I just don't know. But she was always she always gave me a hard time. She didn't like the programs I was scheduling for the institute. Um, she thought that since the institute um, was there to uh, expose the public to avant-garde art, that it was inappropriate for me to, for example, to schedule a a film on uh, Michelangelo mm. or on uh, Donatello on some of the old Renaissance painters and sculptors, you see. And my my point of view was that it doesn't matter if, if you're looking at avant-garde art or not, but still and all, there is a tradition and, you know, it just didn't come from nowhere and these people were the ones that preceded the present generation, from, certainly by many, by many centuries, by several centuries anyway. So that she didn't like that at all. <laughs> and, uh, and so that was just one of the few of the arguments that she and I had. And after about, as I say, after about nine months, I just gave up the whole thing. I just couldn't stand the tension. I couldn't stand the lack of cooperation. So I gave it up. Mm. That would have been in the, the spring of 66, I believe. Mm -hmm. And uh, at that point, I began to think, well, maybe I ought to start up another gallery. And so, of course, I began to talk to uh, the painters who weren't affiliated with any galleries, the photographers, you know, began to probe what, how, what sort of a reception would I get, and uh, everyone seemed to be very encouraging about it. There was a wonderful space available down, in, down at 133 Newbury. Mm -hmm. And so, in the fall of 66, I opened up again. Yeah, that was, uh, I remember that gallery was, a, was quite a nice space. Um, it was quite a nice place. And, uh, 
quite a lot of space, relatively. Sure. Just, well, that's where the whole floor. Yeah. Um, what, uh, what was involved in, um, in your own mind in the move from, from there to, to here, to 162? Well, <clears throat> I mean, you showed painting and photography <clears throat> there, I guess, with uh, reasonable success, I would assume, um, for about four years. Right. Well, there are many factors involved. Uh, financial is one of them. I mean, just the, the rent in that space and carrying that kind of space, you mean? Uh, well, the building was about to be sold. And uh, I got the word that the new landlords were about to double the rent, for one. Yeah. Uh, furthermore, I found that uh, in the uh, well, the two or three years, three years, well, I was there three years, uh, that uh, the photography really took hold. I mean, really began to recognize a significant sales potential. Of right, and uh, the sales were uh, reasonably good. Um, on the other hand, I was finding it extremely difficult to find painters whose work I liked. I didn't particularly care for pop art. Right, which was at that point in full swing. Yeah, I certainly didn't care for minimal art, which was. <coughs> which was beginning about at that point. Uh, I guess conceptual art wasn't born yet. <laughs> Other than your own personal brand. Right. <laughs> Other than my own brand of it. But in any case, I didn't particularly care for the trends that were happening in painting and sculpture. And uh, so I found it, as time went on, it, was, it, was, it became more difficult for me to build up any kind of enthusiasm for for those media. Whereas my appreciation of photography began to grow. Really was really re come up, you know. Had really matured at this point. Oh, absolutely. Uh, I yeah. felt that we were, you know, that my understanding of photography was really coming to a good head. Uh, certainly I got tremendous encouragement from photographers. I was I was beginning to feel that I was making some kind of an impact with museums and collectors. <laughs> Interestingly enough, I started to get letters from outside of the, you know, from various parts of the country, from people who were thinking in terms of opening galleries and did I have any recommendations? And in fact, one of the people that I corresponded with was uh, Witkin. Really? He wrote to you? Yeah. <laughs> Do you have, I wonder if you have a copy of the letter you sent to him? <laughs> I must have it somewhere. Well, one of the things I told him I said, one of the things you've got to do is stay out of those low rent areas of New York. You've got to go uptown. You've got to go where the, where the action, where the art scene is. Yeah, you were saying about Image Gallery uh, yesterday. Uh, what was it? Uh, just that you thought their location was sort of well, abysmal. Yeah, I mean, the, what, that's the Helen G's place, you mean? No, no, the Larry Siegel place. Oh, Larry Siegel's in place down in the, the, where was it? Down Ten, in the, 10th Street. 10th Street or somewhere. Hell, I mean, that. You know, in those, especially in those formative years, and they were formative in that sense, from the collector's point of view, how could you truly uh, entice someone 
interested in the arts, but not interested in photography, to come down to 10th Street to look at photographs in a basement. Right. <laughs> right. And this is what the image gallery had to contend with. Mm -hmm. This is what Helen G. had to contend with, was that... An underground gallery, of course, was the, the real... <laughs> the basement. Yeah, well, whatever. Yeah. I can't get those places straight because I... Even though I was there, I wasn't there that often. I might have right. been there once or twice, and that's about it. Um, and I could never understand why in New York City, of all places, with the, with that huge population, with all that money, with all that activity in the art world, why there wasn't some place established right in the center of 57th Street, for example, right? Mm -hmm. which is where most of the art galleries were established at that time. So that's one of the things I wrote to Whitkin. Get out of the low-rent area, mm -hmm. get uptown somewheres, you've got to put up a good front because you've got nothing, you've got nothing to, you know, in mm -hmm. a sense to, to go on except cosmetics. Yeah. He? he really opened it in a fairly modest space, but at least he was uptown. That's right. And uh, within but shooting distance, at least, of the... Absolutely. You see, it's so much easier to get people from the 57th Street area to come up with, where was he? 68th Street. Or 68th. Well, there are still some art galleries up in that area. Yeah, it's not such a far piece. Right. But in addition to that, uh, I think the whole... Uh, this whole thing with photography began to blossom at that point. The real takeoff point. Uh, the real takeoff, uh -huh. you see. Uh, uh, this whole thing with photography began to blossom at that point. The real takeoff point. Uh, the real takeoff, uh -huh. you see. Uh, this was also at about the period of the first Park Burnett auction. When you, the move to, to here, you mean, saw it roughly at the same time? Well, it's also the same time when Whitkin opened his place. Right? Just about, yeah. I think he opened up in about 69. Yeah, yeah. So, uh, and, about, and I think it was either that or about 1970 that that first Park Burnett auction came up. And so all of a sudden with that Park Burnett auction, Photography becomes respectable, mm -hmm. <laughs> right? It's no longer an underground affair, but it's out in the open, mm -hmm. and we are getting good and fancy prices for the old crap. <laughs> yeah, right. And uh, <laughs> so, uh, not only that, but the, the universities, the colleges, opening up departments, all right? It's, it seemed to be the same situation a repeat of almost the same situation that happened to the art departments in colleges after the Second World War. Yeah. The art departments began to blossom. Just about 20 years later. Yes, and 20 years later the photography departments began to blossom out. Uh, and I think all of these things in conjunction, yeah. you know, finally evolved into this big business that photography is now. So you just felt that the time had come to do The this? time had come, I thought, that to, to uh, give up to painting, especially since I wasn't too happy with what I had to contend with in that area, and to concentrate on photography. Uh, so I made the move here. Did you find... Um, well, wait, let me, let me just... Uh, this is sort of a dumb question, maybe, but to backtrack a little bit. Um, the, uh, I think you're, 
correct me if I'm wrong, but you remarked that you, you, do you live across the street or you own a building across the street? I lived across the street. You did live across the street. Mm -hmm. You, did you say that you owned the building? No. No. No, I don't know. Somewhere, somewhere I thought you had said that. I, well, I said my building. My building. Oh. But, uh, <laughs> it had a nice proprietary Well, sense. yeah, I've lived, I, 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 I lived in that apartment for 18 years. Yeah, that'll do it, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> you know, after a while you get to, you get to be, feel like a proprietor. Yeah. Uh, you know, especially after you paid that much rent. After that, uh, what? After you've paid that much rent. Well, fortunately, it wasn't that expensive. Yeah. But after all, I mean, I was the one who was uh, replastering the ceilings when the leaks came in, and uh, the landlord wasn't doing anything. So, but by the same token, he wasn't jacking up the rents either. So, uh, so I lived there for well, all of it, at least eighteen, perhaps twenty years. Hmm. Mm-hmm. Okay, well, in the, um, the what I was, what I was going to say, in terms of the move up here in, in a more general sense, when you first start in the gallery business, obviously you're developing a clientele over those first couple of years that's largely uh, based on the painters you were showing and the affiliated mm -hmm. arts. And like you said, when you started the photography, you knew it would take a long time to either build a new group or educate the group that you had. Right. And I'm wondering if you could comment on how that did finally change and particularly when you reopened at uh, 133 did you did you find that the whole the group of people interested in photography became larger than the group of people interested in painting or how did that work in terms of your clients well, there was a uh, the private collectors that uh, I became involved with some of them came from the painting area that I knew from those earlier periods. Some of them came from photography, uh, especially among young professionals who were just starting their own careers. Mm -hmm. And by that time, painting became rather expensive to buy, you know, whereas photographs were still relatively inexpensive. Right. Yeah. And so uh, uh, I think that had a fantastic consideration in terms of the young collectors, the young collectors especially. And so that uh, we had these two groups coming up simultaneously, you see. Would it be possible to put any kind of rough numbers on these groups, like in terms of your own mailing list, say, I mean, roughly, you know? Uh, well, they, they, they more or less came from my mailing list. I mean... But that doesn't mean anything because, you know, anybody can get on my mailing list. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I mean, you didn't have any sense that you know 500 went roughly to this kind of person and 500 to that, or you didn't. You don't have any particular sense of how that would have broken down. I mean, just to give me some idea, um, in a kind of a quantitative way. I don't understand what you're driving at. In terms of what? Well, I'm not sure it's a good question, but what I'm what I'm wondering is. Um, is there a point where you felt that say half? Half of the people receiving your mailings were really interested in the photography, and say half really interested in the painting, or roughly what was the mix? Or do you have any idea? There was really nowhere to gauge it, not yeah. at that time. Yeah. Because. Uh, or when you came up here, you know, who well, did you lose? I mean, maybe well, that's a better idea. Well, who did I lose? Just roughly. Uh, For one, I, I lost the the uh, uh, the casual browsers, you see, the people who would just walk off the street and go through the gallery at five. You know, in half a minute or so. Just simply because you weren't on the ground floor. That's right. Or, yeah. Um, 
Which and one? certainly it? lost people who were interested only in paintings. Mm -hmm. Right? But at 133, when I had the paintings and the photographs, uh, there was no way that the people, either, either one group or the other, could uh, lose themselves or could lose the aspects of it, you see, unless they shut their eyes. Mm -hmm. uh, I mean, I suppose, well, the, the painter, the, the, the painted people might have not gone into the photography room, which was further back, as you But the thought. photographer had to walk through the painting. But the photographer <laughs> had to walk through the painting, you see. Yeah. Um, so, uh, uh, I, it's, it's very difficult to, 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 to uh, make any kind of a statement that uh, relates to the to quantity, mm -hmm. to numbers. I mean, Roughly how many people are you are, are on your mailing list at this point, just to give some you know, size of the universe? Well, at kind this of point a I've got it down to about uh, 600 people. But uh, at that point I would have had uh, twice, three times as many. Yeah. Of course there's a whole group of people uh, I'm well aware of. I'm one of them who just love to be on mailing lists, <laughs> who are a drain on the resources of anybody mailing stuff. Well, sure. <laughs> yeah. But that's, uh, you expect that. Yeah, true enough. Okay, well, one of the other aspects, and we've, we've kind of, we've talked around this issue a little bit, but maybe we should make some definite statement on it, is that um, one whole uh, tradition in photography uh, coming out very strongly in the 30s is the whole kind of uh, social documentary or whatever you want to want to call it um, kind of tradition uh, in the 30s and um, this seems to be uh, well again you're showing some of these people but you're um, you're really not, you know, you don't seem to be particularly focused on that aspect of photography from no. uh, from early on. No. Um, do you think this is, is this initially part of uh, Irene Schwachman's? Uh, no, no, it's it's thing? my own choice, really. In fact, I think Irene, Irene in those days was probably more oriented towards the social documentary type, more so than I was. Uh, as I explained to you earlier on, that to me, photography was just one of the arts. And so what I looked for in images had to do with uh, whatever satisfied my own uh, idea of aesthetics, of artistic, of, of you know, of, uh, mm -hmm. artistic aesthetics, I suppose. Yeah. And uh, it could have been someone with, with a, who uh, was a social documentarian. I mean, Jules Ahrens, I thought, belonged to that particular thing. And uh, uh, and to some extent, uh, uh, later on, uh, uh, what the Converse? Hell? Who? Converse, you mean? Converse, yeah, Gordon Converse. And uh, uh, Hine, Louis, Louis Hine. Mm-hmm. Well, yeah. To some extent. I mean, uh, even though I thought that Hine was a sloppy craftsman. Yeah, it wasn't just real. Focus. And uh, in many ways, he was a muckraker. Right, exactly. A propagandist. But some of his images, I thought, fit very well into my concept of, of aesthetics. Mm -hmm. And uh, so I showed those. Uh, because by and large, 
I usually choose a show. Unless I feel that, unless I have absolute and total confidence in the photographer, and I just say, okay, put things together, put your own show together. You see? Because I trust that person to come up with something that I will be in agreement with. Mm -hmm. And I say that because from past experience, I know that this person will, will produce something that will be to my liking. Would someone like Caponegro be in like that someone, category right, today? Right, Caponegro, Carenza, mm -hmm. uh, or Minor for that matter, when Minor was alive. Yeah. Uh, but even so, I would ask them to send me more things than I would exhibit, or that I would have room for. Sure. Yeah. So that I could, again, choose out of that bunch. I mean, one of my great disappointments, to some extent, was someone like Imogen Cunningham. See? Uh, she sent me about, I don't know, 100, 135 prints. Hmm. Well, thank God I had room for only 35. Because out of that batch, I was able, only able to call about 35. Because the others, I mean, from my point of view, I thought were not up to a, the standard that I considered to be a standard of excellence. Yeah, her work to me is very uneven in a lot of respects. So, right. And uh, uh, so that even though I recognize that she was a great force in, the, in photography, that she was a strong influence and a grand old lady and all that, but still and all, when you come right down to it, I have to deal with the final result, the object, the art object. And I have to be in total agreement with it, or I just have to reject it. Some of what you're saying would be a part of, or maybe all of, um, an answer to a question about photojournalism as well, because of course in the in the late later 40s and in the 50s, that is like, in some circles, is the dominant form of photography as far as a lot of people are concerned. Well, yes. And the. I understand that, and I accept it. And again, it's something that, with a few exceptions, you don't really. Um, I can't deny that. I can't. I don't really reject it because after all the stuff is already there all right it's there oh, sure. and there are people who appreciate it and I'm not to say these people you shouldn't appreciate it because I say so all right mm -hmm. but that doesn't mean that I have to appreciate it or that I have to show it or that I have to be concerned with it even though I can recognize the influence that it has on young photographers, on perhaps on the public in general, or whatever, you see. I can't object to it. It's silly. Mm -hmm. Ridiculous. Yeah, well, I, I personally, and maybe you have an, I'm sure you have an opinion on this, but it's actually the whole issue of showing prints of the work of photojournalists in an art gallery context strikes me as a little odd in that the work is really produced for publication right. as its final resting place, if you will. Yeah. And that the, the question of the object or the quality of the object, you know, physically in the, in the art gallery situation is a whole other issue that they don't really Absolutely. participate in. Right. I suppose if I had any kind of a criteria that had to do, that had to relate somehow to photojournalism, which would have to be this, if a photojournalist comes along to me with a photograph that can stand up without a caption, it doesn't have to be somehow explained with a written word, then I might be inclined to accept it. But by and large, most photojournalism depends on the caption, mm -hmm. for one thing or another. Now I recall seeing a, 
an, an exhibition in the museum of Carrie Brisson's work. And I was absolutely appalled at it. Because in the first place, the quality of the prints were absolutely atrocious. And some of those 35 millimeter negatives were blown up to 30 by 40 inches. So that no matter what you looked at, all you could see was the, was the negative grain. Mm -hmm. right? Which, just to, to me, destroyed the entire concept of the image. I mean, the face is grainy, a tree is grainy, the, the sky is grainy, everything is grainy. That whole concept, the idea of texture in the world is lost. The differences of textures, you see. It's lost. So I can't, I can't accept that kind of a picture because to me it's a, it, it's, it's, a, it, it's, it's, a, it's an illustration perhaps of an event that occurred. Uh, it might be a design, strictly a design that's, that's pleasing to look at. But as an, as an emotion, uh, fulfilling image is just not there. But in that same exhibit, I was surprised to see in one room of the museum, a small exhibition of Bresson's work from the, civil, the Spanish Civil War period. And these were, this was a collection of, of I think, prints no larger than made by 10. And they were absolutely beautiful. You see, because for one, in terms of scale, they were appropriate to the size of the negative. Mm -hmm. So that you, you, you no longer got that aberration that, that photography is so capable of on occasion, but the, rather the materials of photography are capable of. Right. Uh, so that there was, there was a beauty that came from the print itself. And because one didn't have to fight through that, the technical aberrations, one could enjoy the image. I could associate with those images. I could get into those images. Had he printed them all? I, I think he did. Because they came from a very early period. No, I mean the whole show? Well, I don't think he did. Whoever does his printing for him. The other ones, though, he had. You see, so that it, it, it's, uh, it boils down to uh, to accepting it at many times it comes down to accepting or rejecting an individual print mm -hmm. you know yeah. and so that uh, uh, because even though I don't even though I, I well I shouldn't say I don't I do place great emphasis on on print quality and by print, print quality I don't mean that everything should be as Edward Weston made his prints straight I don't mean that at all, but I mean uh, that the technique of printing should be appropriate to the image. Uh, I talked about the uh, grain of a negative, for example, how intrusive it is in so many instances. Well, when it's intrusive, it means to me that the photographer does not understand what that can do, how it can be helpful to him in an image. Mm -hmm. uh, John Brooke has made, for example, has made pictures with an awful lot of grain. Yeah. But he has he said. has made it work, it within the concept of the total image. Right. All right. Now Jane Foley here that we showed last year, many of her works are grainy, but again, it fits into the total concept of the, of the image. You see. It's appropriate. It's appropriate. It's, you know, it's in a sense, uh, grabbing hold of, a, uh, what might be a technical flaw in the medium and making it work. A good example of it is uh, with a couple of uh, Stieglitz's images at the museum. Right? Now, I think 
those prints were on uh, those were sepia palladium, I believe. I'm not certain now. I think they were sepia palladium. And apparently, if you didn't process that paper under the right kinds of conditions, it would begin to solarize or mm. whatever. Yeah, I know the effect you and in okay. the stickers that you're talking about. All right. Now, I'm sure he, un he, he understood what was happening. And he made it work for him. He controlled it. It's a kind of a reverse shadow detail that begins to right. happen with it. Right, and he controlled it because there are a couple of beautiful prints. There's one of, uh, uh, I think it's of O'Keefe's hands. Yeah, yeah. And uh, there is that, you know, there is that absolutely exquisite outline of, of her fingers mm -hmm. that came about not from a straight negative, but because of what was happening as he was printing the print. Right. Huh. And so he grabbed hold of, of, a, of an apparent defect in the process, and he exploited it to his benefit, you see, to, to, an, to an advantage which, is, which enhanced the image, you see. So that, as far as I'm concerned, when it comes to things like that, when I talk about technique, I'm not being dogmatic and saying that I don't go for this, I don't go for that, I won't accept the grain, I won't accept the solarized printer, I won't accept whatever other aberrations might come about in the mm -hmm. process. But it, it, it just has to ring true. The process has to be credible. It has to go with the total image. The, the logical question to ask then at this point is what, what do you feel about um, a lot of work that's principally come to light in the last five or six or seven years? I'm thinking of people like Betty Hahn, or Heineken, or Fichter, that uh, almost approaches a multimedia in some respects, that has a, a lot of different, you know, that's putting together a lot of old processes and some new things, yeah. and uh, um, well, it may not be possible to make a general statement. Well, it is. I think it is possible. I can make a general statement. In fact, I can make a general statement on anything you want. <laughs> okay. But uh, talking about this, this uh, uh, mishmash that's coming along, or that has been coming along over the past few years. Now, I have a great deal of respect for someone like Heineken, because again, I think he understands the principles involved in his kind of image making. And even though he uses different techniques and he mixes different images to make one, uh, he does it in such a way that the process does not get in the way. Mm that the end result, that finished image, rings true, you see. And if you can accept that final image, well then, to me, it's a success. It's the same thing with Ullsman's work, Jerry's work. But I have seen things, that, a lot of things that to me are just plain garbage. You know, what people call experimental work. Mm -hmm. Well, fine, I'm, I've got nothing against experimental work, but to me, the experiment should stay in the lab. <laughs> yeah, right. Until you've got some success with the experiment. And I don't believe that it's for the public to decide when the experiment is a success. I think it's the artist who has to determine when that experiment is successful, mm -hmm. and then show it out to the public for either a claim or criticism or whatever. So, no, I think a lot of the stuff is garbage, but I think that there are some things that are coming along that I think are really quite wonderful. I mean, Christopher James is a good example. Yeah, right. He's a perfect... Uh... Painting, enamel. Enamel paints on a, on a print. Mm -hmm. 
Well, you know, right above you is a painted image by uh, Wallace Nutting. Mm-hmm. Yeah, right. All right? Now, that, of course, uh, predates Kodachrome, so his attempt there was to add a bit of color to what is no, what was usually a dull print. Right. A dull image, rather. Uh, but with James, there's something else again. Now, Christopher, when he puts that paint on that print, he does it for a purpose, and that is to enhance the image. And I think he's successful at it. Yeah, it's quite remarkable, isn't it? It's, it's remarkable stuff. And I think that is true of... of uh, there are several people coming along. I, I can't name you any names because I'm very bad on remembering names, but... Uh, well, Christopher James will do. Sure. Standing in for all of, the, all of them at this point. Have you, um, have you personally been a collector uh, of photography in any... Not in any big way. I mean, other than what would naturally tend to fall out uh, on you, sort of? No, not in any big way. Uh, it's almost uh, ridiculous for me to be a collector. Mm-hmm. Look, look around you. Mm-hmm. This is my collection. Yeah, right. <laughs> I do have a few favorite images at home, uh, but it's an eclectic collection. And it's uh, the paintings and a few pieces of sculpture and uh, some graphics, uh, quite a few photographs. Uh, you know. What I would would I be right in guessing and based more maybe on your friendships with the artists involved uh, as much as anything? Yeah. Yeah, some of the things I bought, uh, quite a few things I got, you know, as presents from the photographers or from the painters, for that matter. Mm-hmm. Uh, what about uh, this? This is sort of related to the questions I was asking about uh, photojournalism and so on, but a little, little different. That a number of uh, commercial photographers, um, either during or at the end of a successful commercial career are now um, sort of coming out again in the gallery kind of area. <coughs> I'm thinking particularly of, of Avedon's mm. huge portrait prints and so on, and of Penn's recent uh, little platinum print, mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. not only reprinting old things in the platinum print, but a lot of, uh, or a certain amount of new work, yeah. and, and the street uh, debris stuff, and I'm wondering if you've seen that and what you think of that, what your feelings are about that. Does that raise some kind of perplexing problems, or what do you think? Well, it's not problems for me, if that's what you mean. (laughs) I frankly don't think about it. I know about it, certainly. Um, I've never been a fan of either Avalon's or Penn's. I think that uh, what they're doing now is exploiting their reputations in the commercial world. Uh, They have always been associated with uh, chic society, so to speak, Mm -hmm. uh, with the jet setters or whatever with their backgrounds with Vogue magazine and whatever whatever other right. high-class uh, women's wear publications they were associated with. Well, you know, we are talking now...